Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Amelia Miazad, Faculty Director at UC Berkeley Law's Business and Society Institute. We'll be discussing her article, Pro-Social Antitrust, which is forthcoming in the Hastings Law Journal. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Amelia, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Amelia, in this past year or so of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen something that might strike some folks as unusual, and that is collaboration between competitors, particularly in the pharmaceutical space. So I'd like to open up with maybe a legal discussion of that phenomenon. How does antitrust law generally regard collaboration between competitors? Does it matter if collaboration is intended to reach socially spirited ends, like we want to produce more vaccines versus we want to engage in cartel behavior? Does that distinction matter? And then maybe let's talk a little bit about how antitrust schools think about competitor collaboration. Does it matter whether we are talking to somebody from the traditional Chicago School of Antitrust or the more insurgent Neo-Brandeisian School? Do they see competitor collaboration differently or do they have a consensus view on that? Thank you. That's such a great question. And you're exactly right. The COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted the need for competitor collaboration. So your question, how does antitrust law generally regard collaboration between competitors? It has always and it continues to have a very fraught relationship with the idea of collaboration among competitors. There's such a strong normative bias against competitor collaboration. And this this sort of fear of cartels and smoke filled rooms looms surprisingly large in these circles and also makes appearances in the academic debate. Now, this is because I argue that this is because antitrust law is built upon really a neoliberal economic theory. And that's a theory that prioritizes competition and assumes an economy that has the potential to infinitely grow. I'm assuming that we'll get into this later in the discussion, but that theoretical framework is just not consistent with today's market realities where the market's growth is really bounded. So you asked, the second part of your question was, does it matter if the collaboration's intended ends are public spirited or pro-social? And for the most part, no, it doesn't matter. But here, just stepping back a bit, the phenomenon that my paper seeks to highlight is that antitrust has always drawn a false distinction between pro-social collaboration and economic activity. So in other words, it really assumes that there are two reasons driving competitor collaboration. Either that the collaboration is really altruistic, it's for non-economic reasons to do good for society, or a sham to cover up truly anti-competitive behavior to collude or to create cartels. And you asked about the two sides of the debate, both sides of the antitrust debate disregard that competitive collaboration to address social and environmental issues is an economic priority today. It's an economic imperative for companies. You know, when the largest asset manager in the world, BlackRock, is telling companies to serve a social purpose or risk losing their support, this distinction between pro-social and economic sort of falls away. 
Let's start with the traditional Chicago school or the Bork school of thought, which has, of course, reigned for the past few decades. Competitors can collaborate, but that collaboration can't be anti-competitive. Okay, So whether or not a given activity is anti-competitive is defined by the consumer welfare standard. And unfortunately, or I argue, that standard has become synonymous with price output or efficiency. And adherents of the traditional school argue that this fidelity to the consumer welfare standards really anchors antitrust to an economic analysis as opposed to sociopolitical goals. And what I argue is that analysis is anchored to a bygone economy. Now, the neo-Brandeisians view pro-social activity through a very different lens. And it's true that they argue that antitrust ought to support pro-social goals, including climate change or income inequality, but they frame these goals as non-economic again. So in other words, they're claiming that antitrust should open its aperture and address these non-economic aims. And in that regard, their proposed solutions are primarily redistributive. The Neo-Brandeis movement calls for the dispersion of economic power from the hands of a few market players into the hands of many. And what I'm arguing is actually exactly the opposite. It's a collaborative framework that allows companies, including large multinational companies, to collaborate to address environmental and social risks, but for fundamentally economic reasons. And it's really not all that surprising, Andrew, that the neo-Brandeis movement has this concern about collaboration among particularly large, powerful companies. Really, the Brandeis himself argued vociferously for the dispersion of economic and political power. He believed that concentrations of power ultimately undermine liberty. And if we want to delve deeper into the history, concern about the concentration of power is why Brandeis disagreed with Roosevelt's New Deal policies, for example. My view is actually more consistent with what's called an associationalist model of antitrust, one that President Hoover, a wartime president, advocated for. And President Hoover saw value in collaboration both among businesses and between business and government. So it was very much of a big business and big government orientation and point of view. And what I believe and what I'm arguing is that the risks facing society today, such as pandemics, such as climate change, really require that wartime orientation to allow for collaboration and allow for concentrations of economic and of political power. Now, I do want to end by emphasizing that I'm not arguing that pro-social collaboration ought to have a thumb on the scale or receive less rigorous economic analysis. This is a, you know, a valid concern that we need to keep antitrust anchored to an economic analysis. But the scrutiny that these collaborations receive should be consistent with actual markets of today and not the fantasy markets of the neoliberal movement, which doesn't reflect today's concentrated ownership. At the top of the show, I mentioned collaboration in the COVID-19 vaccine space. We might think that that's a pretty good thing, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what are some areas of American economic and social life where competitor collaboration might be useful or needful today? And uh, perhaps if you can maybe talk a little bit about what the case study of COVID-19 teaches us about competitor collaboration. 
COVID-19 has really highlighted the need for competitor collaboration. Interestingly, it's forced global competition authorities to face the tension between competition policy and pro-social collaboration. And so what have regulators and enforcement authorities around the world have done? They've stepped in to ensure that antitrust would not thwart or slow down COVID-19 recovery efforts. And this has taken many different forms with respect to the distribution of vaccines, the creation of vaccines, and even the distribution of essential goods and services. Now, the European Commission published a temporary framework that recognized cooperation between competitors could ease COVID-19-related shortages of products and services. In that the U.S. antitrust agencies acted to encourage pandemic-related collaboration by creating an expedited response to a business review letter. And Some competition authorities around the world have recognized that this might also need to be extended for the climate crisis, although the U.S. has not gone that far yet. COVID-19 has put this issue, this tension, really in the center of the public antitrust debate. And the European companies produced and offered examples in response to a a debate initiated by the European Commission, which my paper goes through, and it shows collaborations that are being chilled by antitrust. It includes several environmental issues, including the plastic crisis, deforestation in the Amazon, and shows that while many companies can address these issues through unilateral action, that action has its limits. So, for example, in the plastic crisis, if there needs to be a sufficient supply of recycled plastic produced, sometimes that requires competitors to agree to source that plastic from a single supplier, which violates antitrust. So there's all sorts of examples where this collaboration is necessary to address the scale of the problem, but it's not possible given the limitations of antitrust. You come to this issue from the perspective of being a corporate social responsibility and ESG scholar. So I wondered if you can maybe talk a little bit about how the need for pro-social competitor collaboration fits into broader issues around corporate purpose, corporate responsibility, universal owners, and the rise of indexer power in the capital markets. A lot of things there, but how do those strands intersect with this issue in antitrust? This I view as one of the main contributions of the paper. Both antitrust and corporate governance are modeled around an outdated understanding of shareholders and how shareholders view externalities. And my prior work, I've looked at concentrated ownership and how universal owners view risk differently. And in this paper, I extend that analysis to antitrust. So In the past, shareholders were largely undiversified. If you think about it, it's economically rational for undiversified shareholders to want companies to externalize their costs onto other companies that are not in their investment portfolios. But due to the rise of index investing, capital is concentrated in a smaller and smaller number of large asset managers. And these asset managers are called universal owners. And they have a profoundly different calculus with respect to negative externalities. So first, let's take a moment to put this concentration into perspective and put some numbers to this. The big three asset managers, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, are the largest shareholders in 40% of listed companies and 90% of all companies in the S&P 500s. And their power is also increasing. 
And in addition to these large asset managers, assets held by other diversified managers, such as pension funds, have also proliferated. According to just basic modern portfolio theory, diversification immunizes investors from idiosyncratic risks. By putting their eggs in multiple baskets, they're less susceptible to a crisis at a particular company. But the corollary of that is that they remain susceptible to portfolio-wide risks, like climate change. And so as a result, these universal owners met with a lot of cynicism are the most vociferous advocates of social and environmental initiatives. And interestingly, this really was a historical accident. Index investing wasn't created to address climate change, but it's doing exactly that. And that's because the economic incentives of these universal owners wants to protect against systemic risks that affect the entire economy because these universal owners are invested in the entire economy. And we are seeing this phenomenon play out in really incredible ways. Just recently, we saw BlackRock and CalPERS vote to replace three out of four directors on Exxon's board. And the important thing to remember is that their vote against Exxon's directors is fundamentally an economic one because climate change is a systematic risk to their portfolios. And so the cost-benefit analysis of externalities has to be made at the portfolio level for investors today, which means if you take the logical implication of that, diversified investors' relationship to these risks puts pressure on companies to collaborate. And that's true even if that collaboration will reduce profits at any particular firm. So if a firm is externalizing their costs onto the rest of the universal owner's portfolios, it makes sense for them to collaborate with other companies to address those risks, even if that means that their stock price will suffer. If normatively we accept that pro-social competitor collaboration is to be desired, is to be encouraged. I wonder if we could talk about the practicalities of that issue. Do existing antitrust doctrines or enforcement safe harbors like the DOJ and the FTC's competitor collaboration guidelines, do they allow for the kind of competitor collaboration that you call for? Or does something need to change either in doctrine or enforcement policy? So that's a great question. And there are really two things at play. The first is that pro-social collaboration that would in fact be consistent with existing competitor collaboration guidelines is also being chilled. And that's because of the normative orientation against collaboration. Now, that's not a legal barrier, but addressing that will require a massive cultural reform. And that's arguably just as challenging, if not more challenging, than legal reform. So that's one piece of it. The second piece is that there are instances in which pro-social collaboration is in fact inconsistent with the prevailing and I argue narrow interpretation of the consumer welfare standard. The reasons are that the collaboration will in fact raise prices, it will reduce output, and it will impact innovation, for example. There are some specific examples of that activity that the paper goes through, such as group boycotts of suppliers who commit human rights violations. And that's mandatory boycotts, so not unilateral. And also mandatory agreements, for example, to source plastic alternatives from a single supplier. So that's two examples of activity that would violate the existing competitor collaboration guidelines. 
Now, the article's title, Pro-Social Antitrust, may be misleading. So again, to emphasize, I'm not arguing that antitrust should abandon the consumer welfare standard and expand its purview to encompass non-economic impacts, as many scholars do argue. Rather, what I argue is that the consumer welfare standard is too narrow to account for economic impacts at a portfolio-wide level, which is how the market is today. And so it's beyond the scope of the paper to settle on a specific standard, but I do look at the total welfare standard, which has been largely abandoned by courts, but it's more uh, closely aligned with the market reality of universal ownership. Are there any policy proposals that you would offer? Okay, so this is a fun part. This is a part where I get to pretend I have a magic wand. And as an academic, that's, of course, delightful. I do. I do have policy proposals, Andrew. I have proposals for the timid, and I have some proposals for the bold. So let's start with some really low-hanging fruit. The U.S. antitrust enforcement agencies should really take a page from the EU and convene a public debate to surface whether competition policy is currently preventing or discouraging companies from collaborating to address environmental and social risks. And this will highlight chilling effect that's occurring under existing law and also areas where companies might want to collaborate that is in fact in violation of antitrust law. And so that is the first policy proposal. The second one I also view very much as low-hanging fruit, and that's that the DOJ and FTC should update the antitrust guidelines for collaboration among competitors and also issue separate guidance to address climate change in particular. Now, this is not a new idea. In 2014, President Obama issued a statement uh, stressing that cyber threats pose a national security danger. And in response, uh, the DOJ and FTC issued an antitrust policy statement on sharing of cybersecurity information. And that document really acknowledged that antitrust could be having a chilling effect on this kind of collaboration and laid out the contours for collaboration that was perfectly within the bounds of antitrust policy. I think that a lot of benefit could be done just simply by issuing that clarification, particularly since President Biden recently issued an executive order that began with a commitment to put the climate crisis at the center of U.S. national security policy. And antitrust can't solve everything, but it absolutely has a role to play, which is very analogous to what we saw in cybersecurity. The next one policy proposal is that the DOJ and FTC should extend the fast-tracked review process designed for COVID to pro-social collaboration to address climate change. The COVID crisis is analogous to the climate crisis, and in many cases, the fast-track process will allow companies to act swiftly and be able to address climate change. The fourth is more bold which is that courts and antitrust enforcement agencies should recognize that competitor collaboration to address environmental and social risks can be pro-competitive. And so that would be really going back to the total welfare standard as opposed to the narrow interpretation of the consumer welfare standard. And I even go so far as to say that if the social collaboration raises prices for current consumers, but decreases negative externalities overall, then it can still be regarded as pro-competitive. And then the final policy proposal is that Congress should pass legislation that authorizes the DOJ and FTC to oversee temporary and it's very important that I stress that word temporary, collaboration and safe harbors. 
there can be a closely monitored sunset provisions. And that's analogous to what the Greek competition authorities are advocating for, what they're calling a sustainability sandbox that allows competitor collaboration to address climate change and sustainability issues. Now, I I do want to emphasize once again that this will require a far more robust externality accounting than what we have currently. And we need to have that accounting grounded in natural resource and environmental economics, as opposed to what we have now, which is neoclassical economics that really disregards or discounts the depletion of natural resources. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the article? And are there any open questions that you hope to address in future works? So one of the key takeaways is that there's a lot at stake in this debate. And the reason I wrote the article is that in Europe and around the world, this tension between sustainability goals, climate change goals, and antitrust is really at the forefront of the public debate. But the antitrust debate in the US has a very different focus, which is uh, a focus on concentrations of power and on addressing those concentrations of power. That debate has is a very valid and worthwhile debate, but so is promoting competitor collaboration to address environmental and social risks. So I hope to raise the profile of that tension because we're leaving a lot on the table if we don't. Competitor collaboration holds a lot of promise for addressing systematic risks, and we should really ensure that antitrust is not unwittingly thwarting that progress because of a normative bent against collaboration. The second key takeaway is that as corporate law scholars, I hope that the paper will help us stop drawing false distinctions between pro-social and economic motivations and impacts uh, because they're increasingly intertwined today. And with respect to your question about open questions, I think that the open questions are as much economic as there are legal, actually. So we need to incorporate much more behavioral economics and environmental economics into the antitrust analysis. And we need to come up with a standard for antitrust that's consistent with the actual market, which is, as we discussed, dominated by universal owners, a trend that is only likely to continue. Our guest has been Amelia Miazad, Faculty Director at UC Berkeley Law's Business and Society Institute. We've discussed her article, Pro-Social Antitrust, which is forthcoming in the Hastings Law Journal. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Amelia, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, Please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.